Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to this week's episode of Mill Liberty. I'm your host, Caleb Franz. This is the voice of liberty for a new generation. I'm thrilled to have you here this week. This week, uh, we are having a very special guest on the program. Uh, This week will be our last interview of the year, and it is a big one. Uh, We are having uh, Tom Woods on of The Tom Woods Show. Uh, on the program here on the Liberty, and we talk about a wide variety of things from uh, the the splinters and the libertarian movement um, to uh, to to faith and and how that coincides with and, and coexists with uh, with liberty. And I ask him about some of the lessons and 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 things that he has learned from doing over one thousand episodes of his own program. Something that I can only dream of doing. <clears throat> that's that's a that's a lot of episodes. Uh, so without further ado, uh, this is a, an episode and an interview that I'm very excited to bring to you. I hope you enjoyed it. So without further ado, please sit back and enjoy my interview with Tom Woods. All right, Tom, welcome to Mill Liberty. Glad to be here. So uh, for, for those who do not know yet, uh, why don't you just tell us just a little bit about yourself, a, a brief little overview about how you, how you came to be burning index cards uh, right and left. Well, the short version is in, in high school, I was a middle-of-the-road GOP moderate who thought he was cheeky. And then in college, I found myself surrounded by people who held just reprehensible views and I thought were downright crazy. And I came to the conclusion that it's time to clarify what I stand for. I'm either I'm not going to be milk toast anymore. I'm either going to be one thing or I'm going to be another. And that was what basically four years of Ivy League education turned me into, which is I just thought I'm not going to be like these people. And so I had opportunities even before the Internet to go to different events and learn more about libertarianism and stuff like that. And and that just made me more convinced that the way to go was not to be a uh, middle of the road, moderate GOP guy, but to be a a libertarian. And I went through fits and starts in my uh, ideological transformation. I went through a paleocon phase for a while, but eventually I I. uh, came to be a libertarian in the tradition of Murray Rothbard. And I thought that the 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 key contribution I could make was that I've, I've got this elite education from two Ivy League schools, including a PhD. So I, that gives me, for whatever reason, gives me credibility. And I'm going to use that to try to tear down a lot of what these people are trying to do, uh, because I believe that the way they teach history is... Uh, it's not necessarily that they're telling the wrong things. They, they get the names and the dates right. But it's a lot of times what they leave out. It's it's the interpretations they put on it that are just uh, – that are scandalous to me. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, I, I decided that my niche in the world is to take the knowledge that I've gained. And I did gain a lot of knowledge at those institutions, but a lot of it I had to gain on my own. Take that and present it to people who have – enough intellectual curiosity to say, you know what, maybe that cartoonish version of history I got in the seventh grade might have been incomplete. 
so uh, how how many how many enemies did you did you make along the way when certainly you know if if you're going trying to buck the the uh, educational system in, in that way then then that would that would certainly not make for a, for a whole lot of friends. Well, um, in terms of when I was in school, there were enough of us doing it that that we all were friends with each other. But also, <laughs> I, I I've always been a fairly affable guy. So mm-hmm. even when I was at uh, you know when I used to teach or when I was in the the history department at Columbia, uh, getting my PhD, everybody liked me because I was a nice enough guy. And they just thought, how is it that such a nice guy can have such shocking, irresponsible views? I don't know, but he sure is nice. So all right, I, I was okay with that. But in terms of Professionally, what wound up happening was uh, the first time I had a best-selling book. It was the Politically Incorrect Guide to American History, and uh, that actually went very well at the beginning in terms of reception. I got some good media exposure, and I got some very nice reviews from some friendly voices. But that wasn't going to be allowed to persist. Once it hit the New York Times bestseller list, then <laughs> the the, the the floodgates opened and the attacks were just over the top ridiculous right. and, and 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 they couldn't actually find any bad thing I had said that they could quote directly that that would shock anybody so uh, even any even when they scoured my history so they had to do things like well he knows this guy and can you believe this guy thinks that we should all have chickens and lay have them lay eggs or something? I, look, I've never had a chicken. I have no interest in having chickens lay <laughs> eggs for me. I buy my eggs at the store. I mean, that was what – or I kid you not. It was, do you know his publisher is the same publisher that published Michelle Malkin's book in defense of Japanese internment? Okay, so now – do you have any idea how many different books publishers release? Like that was yeah. the best they could do. It's a very that I had the same publisher. Yeah. It was so stupid. So then it was just a flood of everybody piling on in very high profile outlets, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Reason magazine, because mm-hmm. of course the chic libertarians have to make sure the New York Times understands, you know, we he may call himself a libertarian, but he's not on our team. <laughs> no sir, if he had more tattoos maybe we might think about including him. So I, I just, <laughs> I didn't know what was going to happen to me next. And uh, so I just thought, well, I'm going to do what other people in this situation have done, which is a not apologize because I haven't done a darn thing wrong and B just keep churning out material. So mm-hmm. I just kept churning out, um, successful books. I just kept doing it and I kept writing articles and I kept making YouTube videos and it just eventually people give up attacking you. They go on to something else, but I didn't give up. I just kept releasing content. And over time I built up an audience and that audience. Now, if I ever get attacked by these people again, they already, they say, well, typical mainstream media, of course they're going to attack woods. They don't say, wait a minute. I may have to rethink everything I believe about this guy. No, they, who, who would do that? Right. So, so with that, you've, you've had over a thousand episodes and congratulations on that to, uh, to your, to your podcast, the Tom Woods Show. What what are some of the bigger lessons that you have learned um, from your show uh, over over a thousand episodes now? Because certainly you've you've had uh, you've had plenty of opportunity to to reflect on that. I well, uh, yeah, I would say the lessons are are more like business lessons, and so one of them would be persistence. Persistence can pay off. Mm-hmm. I remember early on, I was doing the show while I was also working on creating videos for the Ron Paul homeschool curriculum. 
And that was an as my listeners are tired of hearing about, that was a <laughs> extremely, extremely arduous process and very, very time consuming. I ended up making um, about 400 videos on history and government wow. that I, I had to research them, I had PowerPoints, edit them, come up with assignments for each one, um, record them. And it was just unbelievable how much work that was. And I was launching the podcast while I was doing that. And that was really, really, really tough to do. And I just remember my, in, in some ways, business partner, Bob Murphy saying to me, you know, I don't know exactly how I can't say right now exactly how I just have a gut feeling that if you stick to this, if you keep releasing the content every single weekday, good things are going to happen. Like this is the way to go, even though it's it's painful now. And I think that's true. You just I've, I've been I've been steady. I've been reliable. I produce and every single bit of content I produce is something more that somebody might accidentally stumble on on the Internet. Right. It's, it, every single time I do that, it's a way of reaching additional people. Um, it's a way of making sure people don't forget about me. It keeps my name out there. So that's, I would say that's it. That That's the main thing. I mean, I'm open to other possible lessons, but I mean, it was very tempting to say, I just, I don't think I can do this. So I guess second lesson would be, if you think something's a good idea, it, it chances are it's a good idea immediately. Mm-hmm. Not three years from now when you think you might have the time. This is, uh, this is I think, akin, by the way, to people who say – and I, I understand. I'm, I'm not, not making fun of them or anything. But now is not a good time for me to have children. But you know what? Never's really – it's never really a terrific time because <laughs> you can always think of reasons that it wouldn't be a good time. I'd rather right. do some traveling or I've got this interest or I'm busy or – there's always going to be some reason that you can't do this thing that you really want to do. So you have to just make it happen. If I had started the podcast three years earlier, think of how far ahead I'd be of where I am now. I'm glad I started when I did, but I should have started even earlier than that. We all have these projects in the back of our minds. We think someday it'd be nice. Try and make someday as quick as possible, especially if it's something like a podcast for which you need to generate an audience. Because every day that goes by that you don't start it is a forfeited day of building an audience. You know, I, I, I think that there is quite a bit of truth to, to both the things that you just said, especially because with what I um, have experienced on, on my end, and now it's not a, a daily podcast like what you do, um, certainly you, you put in a lot more work into it, but even, you know, there's just some weeks that I, I really don't feel like I want to do it or I don't have it in me, but I still, you know, buck up and, and, and do it anyway, and that persistence there at least you know, gives people the, the ease of, of consistency, um, in knowing that you are willing to put into it. So maybe they can put a little bit into it as well. Well, when I look back on, uh, a lot of successful people, I think they've more or less followed that model. Now it's not to say that you, that being persistent guarantees success, but not being persistent guarantees failure. So right. it's necessary, <laughs> but not sufficient. Right, right. And, and there's something, of course, to be said about, you know, your, how, how you, uh, your personality and, and how you go about things, but, but certainly those things are, are meaningless if, if you don't put in the effort first and foremost. Right. Yeah, there's no, uh, no two ways about that. And eventually, what I 
wound up doing is uh, I got to a point where I could outsource a lot of the the drudgery of the show because mm-hmm. there is drudgery. I mean, the audio editing, uh, editing to make it sound good and um, to to put out a good finished product is you know is actually a little bit more time consuming than some people may think, and it. I want it to sound as good as possible, so I've outsourced that. It's just things like that. Or I do have a YouTube version. I don't know why people listen to the show on YouTube. There's no (laughs) video. But but there's always a couple thousand extra listeners that way, so I figure I might as well do it. But it's not the main delivery mode of the show. But making a YouTube out of these episodes is also just it's just mind-numbing, and it's time-consuming and annoying. I've outsourced that. And so I'm able to focus on the parts of what I do that actually bring me enjoyment rather than, you know, drudgery. So let's, let's talk about, uh, let's move a little bit more into some more philosophy and, uh, and ideology. What are some of your thoughts, some of your initial thoughts when I, when I ask you about the, uh, the state of the Liberty movement as a whole, because uh, as you know, you've, (laughs) you've become, uh, sort of a, uh, I, I don't like to use the label victim, but in, in a way, um, even, you know, the LP is, is obviously not a big fan of you. Um, and, and that's, well, yeah, that's uh, let me jump in there. I, I wouldn't say the, no, hang on a minute. Let me correct you on that. I would not say the LP is not a fan. Okay, I would say the, the chair, a guy, yeah. a, a guy and, and a uh, sliver of, of the people in it are right, not right, fans right. of, it. but in general, I mean, if, if I weren't liked by their, members, why did they invite me to speak at their national convention? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the that's the big elephant in the room question that doesn't get asked in the whole controversy that I'd, I'd rather not rehash with their uh, chairman. Uh, if I'm such a terrible person, you just the convention was like a year ago. I, mean, yeah. I, I couldn't have gotten that much worse in that year. So why did you or why do all these states? I'm constantly getting invited to state LP chapters to speak at their state conventions. I have to turn most of them down because I don't travel that much anymore. But I still have done that uh, quite a number of times. And when I get there, they're all begging me to run for president. So, <laughs> you know, it's I'm not the guy he's got to worry about. It's his own people because right. they're the ones who are pushing me. It's kind of like people who complain about Walmart putting people out, putting uh, smaller stores out of uh, business. It's not Walmart you have the complaint with. It's the customers who want to go to the other business. So it's an <laughs> analogous situation. But anyway, the, the point is there's definitely division within the Libertarian Party. But, but <clears throat> in general, the movement as a whole, there's plenty of division. And I think it's gotten worse since Ron Paul exited the scene as a politician. Obviously, he still does the Ron Paul Liberty Report and stuff, does a lot of speaking, but he's not a politician. He's not running for president. That was a great unifying uh, center of gravity for us, and we don't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that every single libertarian rallied to Ron Paul, but you could certainly round it off to every single libertarian. Pretty close, yeah. Yeah. I mean, today it's becoming fashionable to argue that Ron Paul's not good enough for me. You know, he's right. not pure. Enough. I want Gary Johnson. Now, how right. Gary Johnson could be pure enough for you, but not Ron Paul, I don't even know. But that's become fashionable, and I, I like to smack that down because th- these are people not worthy to shine the guy's shoes. But th- this was a guy we could all say we're going to rally and support this guy. And at his events, you would see all different kinds of people representing all different parts of this movement. You, you would see people 
uh, of all different sorts of ways of thinking culturally, you would see some conservatives, like some constitutional conservatives would sometimes come and hang on to the movement. And, and we, you know, we all kind of learn from each other. I made many friends across the spectrum. I still have uh, many of those friends. And um, it was a great experience for all of us. But now without him, it's, it's splintered into different cliques, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and they're they're war they're at war with each other, and you know, honestly, I don't want to be in this war. Not because I I'm afraid I'm going to lose or somehow I'm not going to have a show anymore. Whatever. What difference does it make to me? But I I really don't want to be fighting this. I would much rather be fighting the people who are trying to destroy civilization. I'd rather be fighting against those people. I don't want to be fighting with other libertarians. So I wish they would stop starting things with me because I don't, because I'm going to finish them. I'll tell you that I'm (laughs) going to finish them if they start with me, but I don't want to, I don't want to be involved in this. Uh, But at the same time, I should be honest enough to say that sometimes some of these other libertarian groups are just so painful to watch because they're just so they, they, they want to signal to the establishment that, you know, that they, other than my weird libertarianism, which I know offends you, Mr. New York Times reporter, sir, I want you to know that other than that, I absolutely toe the line on everything else you're talking about. So yeah, I want to tear down every statue you want to tear down. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that a lot of my libertarian friends are racist, just like you say. And I'm pretty, I mean, it's just sickening. And sometimes I just have to comment on that because because now those people are more or less uh, turncoats because they're going to the enemy. And I mean, if the New York Times is not the enemy, then the word enemy has no meaning. And basically uh, ratting out their friends who have in 90 percent of cases have done nothing wrong, are just normal people saying normal things that everybody knows to be true. Uh, this is just obscene to me that that you would go there would be people who would say well i'm going to write an editorial for the washington post and they're going to love it because it's coming from a libertarian and i'm going to lecture other libertarians about blah 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 all the things they're doing wrong you know the left doesn't do that to itself i mean there sure there's a difference between the hillary clinton left and the bernie sanders left and they fight with each other but the bernie people don't make a big stink out of, I'm going to make sure I let everybody know that these other Bernie people are not in the right. They, they don't have any, that degree of self-hatred to do that. And I just wish we would be the same way. Is there anybody currently that you see that, obviously nobody right now is quite the unifying force that Ron Paul was in, in 2008 and 2012, but is there anybody that you see today that is at least somewhat close to to that level that is um, bringing the most people together, even while we are somewhat divided right now? Well, I know as soon as we finish this, I'll think of somebody and I'll feel bad, but (laughs) I I don't think there is because certainly Uh there's no meat. There's no media personality that enough of us agree on where we would have a duplication of Ron Paul. Rand Paul obviously is Ron's son, but he has not generated the same kind of excitement or the same kind of unifying force or, or certainly the, the uh, enthusiasm of the young that his father did. There are, it's true, you can find a few people in Congress who are more or less sympathetic to what we're saying, but in general, they're not, like Thomas Massey, I don't think he has any further political ambitions. I mean, I could be wrong about that. I don't think he does. So I don't think he feels compelled to go out there and build a movement the way right. Ron Paul did. 
So I don't, I don't think there is, and that's that's why we're in the situation we're in. Mm-hmm. And and I know that sounds weird that I would say, well, it's because we lack a political figure. When my whole end goal is to be able to live without politics, but I'm just saying on the basis of our own experience that we we saw this with our own eyes, it was precisely the presence of somebody who had a national platform and who was willing to be bold and blunt and to cross all kinds of uncrossable lines that got us excited. And I don't know that outside of politics, I don't know that there's a platform where you get the attention of that many people. You know, maybe talk radio, well, people, you know, people on the other side aren't really listening to talk radio who agrees with us, so it's hard to reach those people that way. But if you're in a televised debate the whole country is watching, you can reach people who never in a million years would have thought they would agree with you, and suddenly you make them think. I don't think there's anything that comes close to that, unfortunately. Is there something to be said about the fact that um, while there there are certainly splintered um, parts of, of the liberty movement, uh, is there something to be said about the fact that maybe that's at, at least we're being honest with ourselves that we, we don't all agree in unison and you don't have to you know just just stick up or, or shut up like like the Democrats kind of do um, with 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 Bernie where he obviously was the most, supposedly the most principled, um, yet he just turned right around and, and endorsed Hillary uh, enthusiastically at the end of the election. Um, yeah. So, so with the liberty movement kind of unwilling to, to go that route, at least is there something to be said about at least where we have enough conviction to, to have those internal battles? If they were about anything meaningful, mm-hmm. that'd be one thing. But and I guess some of it is meaningful. But um, I think it's a lot of it is just character assassination fueled by institutional rivalry and, frankly, envy. Mm-hmm. There are people out there who have been doing this sort of thing, like flying around the world, giving speeches and feeling important, who have not generated one tenth, one tenth, one one hundredth of the following that a lot of independent libertarians have been able to build up for themselves. So I know people who are associated with well-known libertarian organizations who have been around for decades and they've, they have spoken on libertarianism in Madagascar and in New Zealand and, and in, uh, in, in Uzbekistan and all over the world. That's what they do. And they have not generated any enthusiasm that, and, and yet then they look at somebody I don't want to name myself, so let's just <laughs> say imaginary libertarian A. Let's say they look at that person who uh, you know has a big following, is you know is is loudly cheered, and has has a you know if you attack that person, a huge army of people come out defending them. They don't have anything like that, and I think it really annoys them. So I think they have an interest in tearing those people down for for purely base reasons. And it's taken me a long time to get to the point where I would attribute base motives to people. I generally try and say, well, they've got a disagreement with me about X or Y, but a disagreement with me about X or Y does not translate into the level of of vitriol that I see coming from them. If you have a disagreement over intellectual property or or um, the the ideal tax, if you had to have a tax or like whatever, things like right. that. 
this this doesn't possibly lead to this kind of level of animosity. It's it's something else is going on there, and I am increasingly convinced it's bitterness and envy that. Well, I've been working all this time. I've been doing this and I've been doing that. I've been following the rules and I've been quoting Milton Friedman and and all these respectable people and 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 somehow I haven't built up a uh, a following that would crawl over broken glass for me the way these other people have. I think it really, really sticks in their craw that that people who are constantly defying the allowable range of of opinion are nevertheless building up huge audiences. That would really, really annoy some people. So I'm so I I know people are going to think I'm being juvenile for attributing these motives to these people. Uh, sorry, I just think the circumstantial evidence is overwhelming. Really. Uh, so you are a uh, you are a Catholic, and I don't I, I want to make sure that right. That's right. Okay. Um, so you you see that they're obviously libertarians. This is probably one of the most uh, most divisive topic within the liberty movement is is the the issue of religion and a lot of people um they they don't see how a lot of libertarians can can simultaneously be catholic or or just christian in general or have any faith when you yourself are, are catholic um many of the biggest figures in the liberty movement um are are very religious such as Ron Paul such as Judge Napolitano such as you know you the list goes on um many of the leading figures how how do you uh come to terms with uh, like i i myself am, am very christian but I, I i know that a lot of um a lot of libertarians are not that way um how does faith mix with with the liberty with the ideas of liberty well with me it doesn't mix a lot i'll get to in a minute why that is but okay. what i'll say is if i go through the bible i don't like if i'm looking for what would be passages or parables or anything in the bible that would have an economic angle to it i don't see anything in there that is contrary to the free market whatsoever nothing nothing at all uh, I, I, I mean, and I can give countless examples. I mean, the parable of the talents is an obvious example. Or, uh, you know, when when you have the case of a person who, here, I'm going to pay you X at the beginning of the day, and then somebody else comes along and works only an hour, I'm going to also pay that person X. Well, and, and the 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 moral of the story is, don't begrudge the generosity of the owner of that property if he wants to also give. Uh, X to person who worked for only an hour. It's up to him to decide that. Whoa, right. hold on a minute. Wait a minute. I thought it was up to the government to decide stuff like that. So first of all, that's fine. On, on terms of the market economy, there's nothing. You're not going to find anything that is anti-market economy. We can argue about usury, but even that, I've got a big discussion of that. I have a book called The Church and the Market mm -hmm. where I actually talk about a lot of these things. So I would refer people over there. But for me, I mainly want to keep the state from growing because I believe it's potentially uh, a, a threat to everything I cherish. Uh, so I don't, I don't come to this with a lot of religious arguments because my, my, my argument is I have a much more fundamental religious argument, which is I, you know, my faith teaches me there are certain things I ought to value and strive for in my life in terms of character traits and things I should respect and honor and I feel like the state, especially since the French Revolution, is just an engine of egalitarian envy and destruction 
that I think is a threat to everything I cherish. And so I just want to fight against it. I, I, I think it's a threat to every good thing in the world. And I want to fight against it for that reason. So, uh, but in terms of, of libertarians who are, who don't like religious believers, I'd tell them to go jump in a lake. I mean, you're <laughs> supposed to, th these are people who cannot emphasize enough, um, the virtues of doing all sorts of countercultural things, but and what's more tolerance and, right. and all of that. Yeah. What's more countercultural than, I mean, she's, I mean, even the Pope doesn't even feel like defending, um, Catholic belief 99% right. of the time, if you ask me. So, you know, I would say I'm the countercultural, <laughs> but, but, but honestly, these are people who will lecture me about the virtues of being a prostitute or whatever it is. That's fine. But if I just want to be a, you know, just a bourgeois Catholic American, this is the terrible, terrible, oppressive thing when I don't even want to bother these people. I, the last thing in the world I want to try to do is to change the lifestyles of some of these libertarians. You, you think that's how I want to spend my time on this earth, my limited time, is, is trying to argue with these? So why they feel threatened by my beliefs is utterly beyond me. But uh, so, so yeah, I, 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 I find this insane that there are people who worry. But then these are the same people who say, if you don't believe in gay marriage, then don't get gay married. Okay, <laughs> then if you don't believe in Catholicism, don't join the church. Why can't you say both, you know, yeah, both things? Yeah, it's completely consistent. Uh, so that's all I can say about that. Um, so so I am curious, what issue have you uh, shifted on the most in, in your political journey? Well, I mean, I guess, again, this will be one that my longtime listeners know, but, but definitely foreign policy, because I started off as a pretty convinced neoconservative, but only because I didn't know there was another way to think. I thought either I'm a, I'm, I'm a neocon, which I didn't even know what that was, but that's really what I in fact was. You just love America. Or, yeah, right. Or I belong <laughs> to the Democrats and they hate America. Like exactly. that was where, that was where I entered the conversation. And it was thanks to being exposed to other points of view that I realized, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've actually become an apologist for probably the worst part of the whole regime, the, the worst things they do, I'm out there defending. And it took a while for that to get through my thick skull. I already started seeing it in 1991 even, even before I had been exposed to, I'd never even heard of Murray Rothbard or the non-interventionist paleocons or any of those people. I just, on a human level, I felt like uh, that Persian Gulf War was awfully destructive and that I had no particular grievance against the people of that country, and that surely we could negotiate some settlement over what Kuwait was obviously slant drilling on Saddam. That was what provoked the whole thing. Surely we could have negotiated that. There was no reason for this to happen. And then the U.S. government more or less winked at him when saying that, well, if you have a dispute with Kuwait, that wouldn't really be. April Glaspie told him that from the uh, diplomatic corps. Uh, that that wouldn't really be any of our affair. And then he does it. And then it's, well, now we're just going to come in and rain bombs on everybody. I just thought, ah, something, something doesn't quite sit right with me on that. And so I went in and I talked to one of my European history professors. I thought, all right, well, let me, let me hear the, the different sides of this. Uh, and my European history professor was Charles Mayer, very, very accomplished guy, very, very smart, and on the left. And I thought, you know, let me just hear what they have to say. He was all for the war. 
<laughs> <laughs> and, and and why wouldn't he be? He was an establishment Harvard professor. Why wouldn't he be? And right. I, that was when I really started to wake up to understand it's not just Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives. Now, there's a war party, and it, it runs across the establishment. And what he told me was, go read The New Republic, which is a left-of-center establishment left magazine. There is a, a cover story called the, the Liberal Case for the War, and, and maybe that will make you feel better about it. Uh, okay, so I went and uh, kind of satisfied me a little, but but even then, even without being exposed to anything, I just thought there's something kind of rotten about the war machine. So that was probably the thing that I've changed my mind on the most. Uh, what issue has been the most difficult, or the one that uh, the one that you knew was going to get you in the most trouble uh, in in defending? Well, I guess it would be a tie, really. Uh, the there's there's a prejudice among the American public when it comes to education that everybody thinks there's one way to do it. You send your kid off to the local neighborhood school, where, by the way, the kid is. I mean, it's the teachers are a problem. It's the other kids that are the main problem. I mean, I I know this is going to sound like an insult because it is meant to be an insult. <laughs> I don't know who's raising these little savages, but <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, no wonder my kids can't be friends with them. I, I don't want them to be. Yeah. Thank goodness that I'm not sending them there anymore. Uh, um, now, OK, they went to a private school. Um, my kids went to a private school, for an outstanding private, a private school that used to invite me to come speak. Yeah. Uh, in the classroom. <laughs> I is... mean, so, yeah. So I'm telling you, these were good people, um, but we didn't have that anymore. And and. um so they've had experience of all different educational settings. They're homeschooled now. And, but anyway, people think that the public school is, is the American church. It really is. If there's an American established church, it is the government schools. And if you are going to speak against those, then that means you favor illiteracy and everything else. But to me, if you favor illiteracy, you should favor these schools. And, 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 I, and it really annoys me particularly to be lectured to by parents who are always talking about the, the, because they know the culture expects them to talk about the value of education. So they comply. They talk about the importance of education. But most of these people on the airplane are reading some trash novel they picked up at the airport store. Mm -hmm. um, most of them are spending most of their time at sporting events. Uh, I frankly, I find most of these people who blah, blah, blah about the importance of education. How many books of, of, about anything serious have they read since they got out of the system? I, I, don't, I don't believe these people. I, I, I just don't believe them. What, what they want is they want the, I, I guess not true of absolutely everybody, but a lot of them, they just like the, the, the babysitting services and the fact that it's quote unquote free. Uh, they don't want to hear about anything else you have to say about it. So that's going to get you in trouble. And then secondly, uh, the thing that most libertarians want to run away from as fast as possible is anti-discrimination law. I don't believe in it. <laughs> Sorry, I don't, I don't believe in it, and I know that that makes me a terrible person and suspect of racism and all that. But, you know, breathing makes you suspect of racism, so I don't even care about that anymore. Um, I, think, I think we owe it to each other to presume that we are decent people. I think we owe that to each other. People don't give me that benefit of the doubt a lot of the time, unless they listen to my show and they come to the conclusion, I think I've kind of gotten to know this guy. He seems okay. <laughs> he yeah. seems okay to me, right? <laughs> Does not seem like a terrible person. But 
I think it just leads to all kinds of terrible problems, and I think it's unjustified. I don't think you have the right to force yourself on somebody who doesn't want to have a relationship with you. That that's basically what it boils down to. You can give me a lot of there's a I understand there's a lot of emotion that is attached to this, but we have to set that aside and just ask, do you want to live in a society where would you rather live in a society where nothing happens unless both sides to an agreement agree to it, or that one side can force his will on the other? That is what it boils down to. That is all it is. That is all it is. And yes, some people will do things that that you think are terrible. So therefore, okay, well, now you know who those people are, and now you can punish them if you want to punish them through your abstention from buying. But it leads to all kinds, because then it leads to it leads to things like this. Um, that just, oh, just now over at Oberlin college, super left-wing college, there were three people who were stopped for uh, shoplifting and in a local bakery. Now, I mean, what, who shoplifts in a bakery? We're going to grab a loaf of French bread. What is wrong with you? Who shoplifts in a bakery? Anyway, the, the owner, uh, kicked them out and, and I guess they were brought up on charges and all that. And they pleaded guilty to, uh, shoplifting. But they were black. So, of course, uh, the, uh, the college is accused of, of now of having taken punitive measures against this particular bakery and of encouraging and even subsidizing students who were protesting against this bakery, calling them racists. And uh, on, on the grounds that what? There were black students who tried to steal some French bread or whatever it was, and they said, please don't do that on those grounds? And so... It became a matter of the, the argument was, well, they're disproportionately hurting blacks, and so therefore they must be racist. That's where all this stuff eventually goes because you have to read people's minds. You have to try to read their minds and say, well, if they have this disproportionate outcome, it must mean that they had a terrible intent. And it turns out, by the way, the numbers are you know, of all the shoplifters they've had, they've had 40, six were blacks. So that's not vastly out of proportion to the black representation in, in American society. So this, so even then, they didn't even have the numbers uh, that, that would incriminate them. But once you step down this slope, it just becomes, uh, you know, if I kick out some troublemakers and they're black, well, then obviously I'm racist, or at least the presumption is that I'm probably up to no good. Um, you, you just can't do that. Just can't do that. It's, it's, it, it's, it's unfair, and it leads to a lynch, lynch mob mentality against people who are just, just trying to do what any normal person would do. If you're trying to steal from me, I want you, to, I want you out. If you're screaming and hollering and you act like you're the only person in the world, I don't care what your race is, you're out. Right. And, of course, that, that uh, come, brings the, uh, the, the Baker issue uh, to mind, and it has gripped the, uh, the national spotlight as of, as of late, and there's certainly many... Uh, religious liberty, uh, and and really, it's it's not even about religious liberty. It's about just freedom of association. Right, and so here is the problem: that once you accept the idea that it's okay for government goons to force somebody to do business with me who doesn't want to do business with me. By the way, I don't know why I would want somebody who. Why would I want to be waited on by <laughs> yeah. somebody who has indicated who he hates does not you. want to do business? Yeah, yeah right, yeah. What the heck is going to be in that piece of cake I just got? Right, <laughs> exactly. Know? Yeah. Why would I want to do that? Uh, so it's, and again, does that is that going to lead to more reconciliation and friendship, or just continuing bitterness and suspicion? Anyway, 
S- same thing with uh, busing kids for an hour and a half each way. Oh, yeah, right. they're going to be super thrilled to get to their new integrated school after you do that to them. I'm sure that will lead to racial harmony. Well, right. now you have s- schools that are more segregated than ever in the inner cities, more segregated than ever. As a result, I mean, that's only the government could be so bad at what it does that it could have a systematic campaign to integrate the schools. And the result is they're more segregated than they were before. <laughs> I mean, that is a real that's a really amazing feat. But when it comes to this whole uh, religious liberty thing, I understand, frankly, progressives who feel like this is just special pleading on the part of, of Christians because they'll say, oh, but you shouldn't discriminate against groups A, B, and C. They should be, uh, you know, you should be forced to bake a cake for them. Um, but we shouldn't be forced to bake a cake for this other group. Well, what? Why? If, if you've just got done fighting for the principle that everybody has the natural right to have a baker bake a cake for him, and then you say, but if it's gays, we don't really want to bake that cake. Well, that just sounds like, whoa, that's just gratuitously nasty. Mm-hmm. So it, in other words, they've already taken out from under themselves the principle on which they ought to be able to stand, which is guess whose bakery it is. Guess whose property it is. Guess who bought this bakery? So therefore, guess whose rules? In the same way that if you're in my house, you can't scream obscenities at me. You can't lecture me about the the virtues of Marxism. You can't do any (laughs) of those things because it's my property. Well, we've got this crazy doctrine that if I open a business and people can come in and be customers, somehow magically the property acquires these magical traits that they wouldn't have if it was just my house. Suddenly, they become it becomes accessible to all. Why? Why did those people um, scrimp and save to to make the down payment on it? Did did those people help me figure out what my business model was going to be? How do they have a claim on it? How, and certainly, how do they have a claim on my labor exercised inside that building? That's the thing. But again, these. Most of the people who are arguing about the baking the cake thing are people who have spent the last 50 years trying to argue that Martin Luther King was a conservative just like Newt Gingrich. Uh, They're not going to go anywhere near arguing any of that stuff. Not that that would win it for them, but at least they'd have some kind of principle other than we just don't feel like doing it, which doesn't seem like a very good principle. There are a lot of things in life you don't feel like doing, but you got to do them. Uh, so I, I want to get through, right before we uh, close out here, since we are coming closer to the end, um, I, I do want to go through a, sort of a, a lightning round of sorts of questions. Uh, you don't have to keep them entirely short, the answer's short, but uh, I, I, I will just go into the next one after that. Uh, so what subject has been your favorite subject to do an episode on? Oh, I think that's just too hard with uh, one thousand <laughs> something of them. I think I just I'm afraid I can't answer that one. Uh, who besides besides Michael Malice, who has been your favorite guest? Oh, geez, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But, <laughs> uh, honestly, I would. I'd have to probably. I don't know. I can't say that this is definitely my favorite guest. Um, but it doesn't yeah, have to be my, exact, just like around yeah, the yeah, yeah. Around well, the thing is, my favorite guests are going to be people nobody's ever heard of. Yeah, uh, and and the thing is, I like having them on because I want more people to know about them. Yeah. And by the way, that is one thing about the show that I've been really glad about that I've been able to bring on people, and I say, 
this person deserves to be better known. And I know my audience is going to love this person. And I think I have helped to build audiences for people who had smaller or non-existent audiences before. And that makes me happy. It's not like I have the world's biggest platform. I, I'm, I'm nowhere near somebody like Dave Rubin. Right. But I, you know, people who do listen, listen regularly and they trust my judgment. And for example, Scott Horton is a great authority on foreign policy. And I know I've brought a lot of, a lot more people over to him. They'd never heard of him before. And then they find out how smart he is and they want to start listening to him. And that makes me happy. So I would say Bill Kaufman is probably one of my favorites because I can't pin, I can't classify Bill. He's not a liberal. He's not a conservative. He's not a libertarian. He's anti-state, but he's also pro-Ralph Nader. I, I, <laughs> I can't figure him out, but I love him. And yeah. he's so smart, and he's such a great writer, and he's so much fun to talk to, and he keeps me on my toes. That's what I like. I like uh, guests like that. But on the other hand, if I just if I just want to have a fun conversation with somebody where it's the same conversation we'd have on the phone, it's just we're recording instead, then I would say Lou Rockwell. I mean, the episodes we did critiquing the different Republican presidential debates mm -hmm. were the most downloaded episodes of that time that I've ever had. Uh, and, and people all say, oh, we don't care about politics. Yeah, right, you don't. I got the download <laughs> things that show otherwise. Um, and, and this one might get a similar rea reaction to, to the first one that I asked, but uh, I, I'm, I'm very interested about this one because I ask it to, to all my guests, and uh, this one I, I think might get the most interesting response to. Uh, what book has had the biggest impact on your outlook in life and, and on your philosophy? Hmm. Well, if I absolutely had... To <clears throat> had to narrow it down to one, and it would be because uh, the, the book I'm going to give, it's because it got me thinking differently, which led me to other books. Mm -hmm. And those other books may have kind of honed exactly who I was going to be, like books by Rothbard, but I didn't start with Rothbard. I'm talking about what led me down that direction. And so the answer for me would be Modern Times by Paul Johnson. I read that as a college freshman, not for any class, of course. They would die a thousand deaths before signing that book. But it's a world history from the 20s to the 80s. Do not get his later edition, the 20s to the 90s, because he's terrible in covering <laughs> the 90s. He's a neocon, and it, it comes through in the 90s. But he suppresses a lot of that in the rest of his stuff. And it is a masterwork that basically shows it, – it, it, he's deliberately or not showing – the horrors of the state during that roughly 60-year period all over the world. So not just in the West, but also in Africa and Asia, everywhere. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing book. And it made me think, wow, I have been led to be, I've been wrong about everything. The, I've been wrong about who the good presidents are. I've been wrong about all this stuff. Well, I think we, we've all been uh, yeah, wrong but this <laughs> to one, some degree with that one. This wakes you up and it helps you to recover. Right. So I would I would say it's a big book, but it is absorbing, and you're just going to love it. All right, Tom, uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Where can people find you on uh, social media, and where can people find your show? Well, the best thing to do is to go to tomsfreebooks.com, because there I have books like um, uh, Bernie Sanders is Wrong. That's actually the name of a book. I have a book <laughs> called... Uh, 
education without the state. So what would happen? Would everybody be an ignorant idiot worshiping Thor if we didn't have uh, the public schools? What would actually happen? Or I have a book called Your Facebook Friends Are Wrong About Healthcare. Uh, all these sorts of topics that we have to deal with, I've done free ebooks on. It doesn't cost you anything. So um, I would start there, tomsfreebooks.com. And then that's going to lead you to my website, and then you can explore the show. All right, uh, Tom, it's been a blast. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, and of course, uh, everyone can follow me at Caleb Friends on Twitter, follow the show at Mill Liberty on Twitter, and subscribe to us on iTunes so that you will never miss an episode or an update. And until next week, next week's our, our last episode of the year, and uh, it's, it's one that you won't want to miss. So until next week, we'll see you.